Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. Many of us have been raised on principle-based Christianity, that the Bible is full of principles. And if you follow these principles, your life will proceed in an orderly pattern of blessings. Some of you were taught Bill Gothard's Institute and Basic Life Principles. If you go to his website today, it says, the Institute in Basic Life Principles is dedicated to giving clear training on how to find success by following God's principles found in Scripture. Did you catch that? Follow the principles and you'll find success. When we first started having children, we did something called Growing Kids God's Way. It was a, 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 a curriculum based upon principles that if you did the right principles of raising your kids, then they would follow the Lord the rest of their lives. The most famous principle-based teaching this day is what many of you already know is Dave Ramsey's Money Makeover. It's based upon biblical stewardship. If you pay off your debts, cut off your credit cards, curtail your spending, then you're on your road to financial success. Now, each of these principle-based programs have some good ideas, some wisdom to implement in living your life, raising your kids, and managing your finances. And underlying all of these principle-based programs is this subtle and not-so-subtle selling point. Obey the principles and you'll have a successful life. If you disobey the principles, then your life will be wrecked. And the, and the sentiment would echo many of the Proverbs in the Bible. Now, unfortunately, what the deal is, is that people take these principles and turn them into formulas. And they think in their head and their heart, if I, if I save my money, if I don't spend, if I tithe, then I'm going to be financially free and successful. If I spank my kids and teach them yes ma'ams and no ma'ams, then they're going to grow up to be good citizens. And here's the deal. What happens when it doesn't work that way? Train up the child in the way he should go, and, and when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. And yet you did everything you could do to train your kids to follow Jesus, and I'm sure a lot of you have prodigals right now. You implemented the principles, financial stewardship, and then you went bankrupt. So here's the deal. This is what I want to get at. Too many times what we do is that we plug in the principles, and when they don't work, our hearts can turn bitter toward God. And so I want to just tell you this. This book right here is the Bible, right? 
People say the Bible is B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before you leave earth. You've said that before. You've believed that before. But what I want to say this morning is this. Is there something more? Is it just principles, plug them in and go? And the argument we're going to hear today from Job and throughout the book of Job is that, yes, there is something more because walking with Jesus is not transactional. It's not just plug it in, get the output. Because what's missing on many of these principle-based programs is a relationship with God. You were never meant to hold to the principles of Scripture without a relationship with God. And too many times when we leave out a relationship with God, we're wondering why the input and the output is not working. Because a lot of times what undercuts the principle-based programs is suffering. What if your life is not a success? What if it's filled with suffering? Did you do something wrong? Did you fail on the principles? Or is something else going on? And you can only know that through a relationship with God. So let's turn to the book of Job. I know many of you have never studied Job before. It's a very long book. We're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 and 10 today. Bringing you up to speed. Some of you uh, may not know the story. So Satan approaches God in heaven and says, Job only worships you because you give him the stuff. Remember? Take away the stuff, he'll curse you to his face. God's like, go for it. Do what you want to do. And so his ten kids are killed. His property's destroyed. He has sores and boils all over his body. He's unrecognizable. And in this midst of this pain and suffering, his three friends travel a long way to come and comfort Job. They arrive on the scene. They barely recognize him. They hear Job crying out, why doesn't God just kill me? This is not fair. God is treating me harsh. And his three friends stopped sitting with him and started speaking. And that was the biggest mistake they made. They opened their big mouths. And what they're pretty much going to say throughout the whole book is, we know how life works. And you, Job, don't. And then today we're going to move on from last week we saw Eliphaz. And today we're going to see Bildad. And Bildad is brutal in what he says. So let's start. Chapter 8 of Job, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite, and let me just stop right there because I know after the service about 25 of you are going to come up and tell me a joke. So I'm going to tell you the joke now. All right, let's just get this over with. All right, who is the shortest guy in the Bible? No, it is not Zacchaeus, even though he was a wee little man. The shortest guy in the Bible is Bildad because he was Shuhite. Yeah, exactly. I'm sparing myself from you telling me that joke by telling you now. You're welcome. 
verse 1. Then Beldad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteousness estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, your end will increase greatly. Now, Bildad, he's aggressively confronting Job. And he says that God never perverts justice. And it's very brutal what he says. He goes on to say that Job's kids died because of their sin. Did you see that? Did you see it in verse 4? He says, if your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. He leaves no room for forgiveness. He leaves no room for all the sacrifices that Job made on behalf of the sins of his children. He's arguing that God runs this world based upon principles, and those principles cannot be overridden at all. And so your sons sinned, therefore they died, and it's this principle of justice that got them. And guess what, Job? It's the principle of justice that's getting you to right now. You are suffering because of your sin. But there's hope, Job. You can repent, repent of your sin, and this whole thing can be turned around. All you need to do is repent, and then when you repent, your end is going to be as good as your beginning. You just simply need to repent. Now, Bildad's argument is based upon theology. You may assume that theology is worthless in the midst of suffering. I read that this week on social media. Let me have this. Uh, do I have this image I can show you uh, from social media this past week? Do we have that? All? That someone said, when we are suffering, theology doesn't help. And so in the middle, you have the tragedy. And on the outside of the circle, you have theological explanations. And I want to tell you right now, that is wrong. Okay? If anybody ever says to you, when you're suffering, theology doesn't help, that is wrong. When you are suffering, you need good theology to carry you through. When you're suffering, you want to know who God is and what he's doing. But Bildad, in the midst of this suffering, not only is he bringing bad theology, but get this, he's taking good theology and applying it badly. You get that? He's making the wrong application. Yes, God is a God of justice, But Job is not suffering because of his sin. He was wrong. Continue on. Verse 8. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? So this is what he's saying. Do you remember Eliphaz? He's saying, let me prove my point. And he tells you about this crazy dream he had. Well, that's not what Bildad does. Bildad says, let's look to the past. And our forefathers would tell you that God's of a God of justice. You do wrong, you will be punished. You do right, you will be rewarded. 
And in fact, the old timers would compare this to plants. Let's look at verse 13, 11 and 13. Verse 11, can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? Why, while it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant? So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. So the older generation will say the papyrus grows tall, but without water it will wither before any other plant. So the wicked, they're growing tall, they look impressive, but since they are not rooted in the ways of God, they will perish. That's the way the world works. We know the way the world works. The righteous flourish and the wicked perish always. We know this, Job. Verse 20. Verse 20. Lo, God will not reject the man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. If God never rejects those of integrity and he will never support the evildoers, then guess what category Job falls in? That's right. He's an evildoer. Bildad has it all figured out. And on top of that, he is a compassionless friend. Do not be like Bildad. We need friends who support and encourage us in difficult times. This afternoon, later on, my wife and I are flying out of town. And on our trip, she will visit one of her friends who moved from our church. You see, there's this group of ladies, and I don't want to out them right here, so I won't call out their names, but there's these group of ladies, my wife included, that meet every Tuesday to eat tacos. One of those ladies moved away this past fall to get married. She got married, and a little over six months later, her husband died. And this group of ladies has rallied around her to encourage her and support her. That's the right action. That's the support that we need in our suffering. But that's not the support that Job got. He got Bildad's argument. Well, let's see as Job pushes back against Bildad. Let's see if he can follow Job's argument. Chapter 9, all right? Then Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? Job's like, okay, okay, okay. I, I agree with you. God punishes the wicked. In theory, I understand that. That makes sense. But here's the deal. How can I, as a human being, prove my innocence before God? I've done nothing wrong, and yet I'm suffering. How can I show you? How can I show God? How can I make an argument that I am innocent? In practical terms, what would that look like? In legal terms, how can someone plead their case before God that they've been living a righteous life? Hey, God, look at me. Look at me, God. I've not done anything wrong. What are you doing? Verse 3. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him. 
He could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how when he overturns them in his anger who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and night to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not pursue him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? You ever said that to God? What are you doing? And yet, God is completely wise in heart and mighty in strength. He moves mountains as he sees fit. He tells the sun when to shine. He flings the stars into place. He is God and he goes where he pleases and does what he pleases. How in the world would a human being come before God to present his case before God and say, God, what are you doing? Chances are, I'm sure you've said that before. I don't know if, if how many of you are parents, but have you ever seen your kids go off the rails? God, what are you doing? This week, I saw something that a father said. He said, my wife and I interceded for our three kids before they were even born. And when they were born, we prayed for them just about every single day of their life. And yet, our middle daughter, our middle daughter is so rebellious, she's living with a man who is twice divorced with no plans to get married. She's had two abortions that we know of and she does not listen to us, and she does not listen to God. And we have prayed and interceded for her even before birth. And he says he gets angry, and he cries out to God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? Well, look what Job says. He continues on. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9, verse 15. Job says, for though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. Jump down to verse 20. Jump down to verse 20. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. You see, what Job is arguing that he has done nothing wrong before God. If he were finally able to present his case before God, it doesn't matter. God would crush him anyway. Because who can stand before God? God takes and crushes both the wicked and the righteous. And Job feels this playing out in his own life. And he says in verse 22, it is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. And the wicked. See, Job feels like he's living this reality of God coming after him, even though Job is righteous. And look what he says in verse 33. Jump down to verse 33. Look what he says. He says, There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. 
He's like, I'm innocent. I've not done anything to deserve what's happening, but why does it matter? It's not as if there is this umpire or this mediator that can be this go-between between the two of us and plead my innocence. You three friends are certainly not going to do that. Who's going to do that? Who's going to be the umpire? Who's going to be the mediator to show my innocence before God? Boy, that is a big setup for us as Christians. Who is going to be our umpire? Who is going to be our mediator to plead our innocence before God? Listen to this. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So we have an advocate before God with our righteousness. But get this, our advocate before God advocates with his righteousness given to us. So he pleads our innocence before God, not because we're innocent, because we are innocent before God in Christ. That's amazing. That is amazing. I could go on with that, but let's move on. Chapter 10, we're just flying through Job. Chapter 10, now Job's going to give his full complaint and full vent to God. Look at verse 1. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh, or do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? Or your years as a man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I'm indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Wow. Joe sees himself as innocent before God, and yet for some reason unknown to God, God is punishing him and crushing him. Oh, let's just stop for a second. What if Job knew what was going on in heaven? The book wouldn't be as good, right? He can just say, well, let me tell you what's happening. The reason why I'm facing all this stuff because Satan and God, they got this challenge going on and I'm bearing the brunt of it, but I'm just going to hold on because at least I know what's going on. He doesn't know that. And that's what makes the book of Job so good, right? What's happening to me? I don't know. God, have mercy. What is going on? And it continues on. Verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether. And would you destroy me? Can't you just give me a little happiness before I die? Why, why, are, you, why are you trying to kill me? And then he continues on. In verse, verse, let's jump down to verse 18, chapter 10, verse 18. He says, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my days alone withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow 
the land of utter gloom as darkness itself, or deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness. Job wishes that as soon as he came from the womb, he would have gone to the tomb. He wishes he was never born, wishes if he was born, he would have died right away. My daughter, 22-year-old daughter, is a chaplain at a hospital in downtown Chicago. And she told me she met with a woman this week who was in so much pain. She said, you know, my parents went through so much fertility treatment just so I could be born. I wish they never did that. I don't know if you've ever been that low. It's not as if you're suicidal. You're saying, I just wish I was never born and this would have never have happened to me. And Job's crying out to God and he's getting no response from God yet. But my brothers and sisters, even though Job is full of suffering and pain, we have a bigger book that gives us hope. Now, I realize that many of us have not grown up in a church that talked about suffering and pain. It talks about moving from blessing to blessing and blessing American Christianity. If you go look at the top 10, it's just filled with how to be successful. Some big smiley guys on the front. You know who I'm talking about, right? Just so you can have your best life now. You know what I'm saying, okay? American Christianity leaves out this suffering piece. This past week, someone from our church came up to me and showed me one of our pew Bibles that's in front of you. And in this pew Bible, there was no book of Job. No joke, it wasn't there. No one ripped it out. It simply was printed without Job. That is so appropriate, right? Right there. It's almost like, well, no one's ever going to read that book. We'll just leave that one out. And yet, we know that real Christianity is filled with suffering. And that is why, even though these principle-based programs are great, give you some good wisdom, it's almost like they want to guarantee success and a life of not too much hardship or suffering. But I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, if I'm reading this book right, which I think I am, it says those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. The Apostle Paul talked about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Not just the power of the resurrection, but the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And the reality is as believers, even as believers, we will suffer and oftentimes we can't fix it. And I want to tell you this, just because you're a believer and you're rooted in the sovereignty of God and you're rooted in the word of God, doesn't mean that real pain won't still hurt. We never get to a point in our Christian life where we say, well, that doesn't hurt. No, pain hurts. Sufferings hurt. Trials hurt. But we want to be like Job. Did you notice what he's doing? He keeps coming to the Lord. He keeps coming back to the Lord over and over again. He does not... Deny the Lord. He does not curse the Lord. 
He keeps coming to the Lord. He's like, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in control. You give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knows that God is good. That's why he's crying out, why is this happening to me? You're a good God. You work good for your people. What is going on? And he keeps running to the Lord over and over again. And for those of us on this side of the cross, we not only have Jesus as our advocate before our Father for salvation, Jesus is continually at the right hand of the Father to give us suffering. When we suffer to comfort us with peace and mercy in our time of need. So we can continue to come to Jesus and find that he is there for us to give us his presence and his peace and his comfort even in the midst of the trial. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way, guided by God's Word.